We'll hear argument next in number 92-1441, Harold E. Staples versus United States. Ms. DeAngelis. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. My client, Harold E. Staples, was convicted of knowing possession of a machine gun not registered to him in violation of 26 U.S.C. Section 5861D. My client is asking this Court to reverse this conviction and remand this case for a new trial, a fair trial. The defendant respectfully contends that the first trial was not fair. It was not fair because the jury was prohibited by the jury instructions presented to consider whether or not Mr. Staples knew that the sport rifle he possessed was, in fact, a machine gun. As stated by Justice Ebel in his concurring opinion, printed at page 24A of the petition for cert in this case, whether the appellant in this case is an innocent victim is an open question because the jury was precluded from considering his knowledge of the gun's capabilities. Principles of justice and fair play suggest that we let the jury decide whether the defendant possessed an automatic weapon. Prior to this criminal prosecution, the citizen before this Court had no prior criminal record, was engaged in no unlawful activity, certainly engaged in no unlawful activity in connection with this gun, and by all accounts... You say certainly he did not? Certainly he did not. Well, the jury thought otherwise. Uh, prior to this criminal prosecution... Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. <clears throat> Mr. Staples believed what he possess possessed what he believed to be, and the undisputed evidence, testimony of three other witnesses at trial, was that this legal semi-automatic weapon operated only in semi-automatic mode prior to government seizure and test fire in January of 1990. Well, now, counsel, I, I am uh, somewhat concerned about <laughs> the argument in your brief, and apparently one you're going to make here, that uh, we have before us this issue of whether um, the defendant actually knew it was automatic. I thought the jury found that it was a machine gun. And the Court of Appeals did not overturn that finding. Justice O'Connor, I would disagree to the extent that the jury was precluded from considering whether or not the weapon was a machine gun because of the nature of the instruction. All the jury had to find was that the defendant possessed a device that was dangerous, and that dangerous device was likely to be subject to regulation. Uh, that's well, not I the same. The jury as, had to find that it was a machine gun. They didn't have to find that your client knew of its capability. They had to find it was a firearm, and technically... And the firearm was defined in this instance under the statute as something that fires automatically with a single pull of the trigger. That's correct, Justice O'Connor. <clears throat> and, and that was the finding, and the Court of Appeals uh, did not upset that. So we, we take that as a given, don't we? When the trigger was pulled on this gun, the weapon fired multiple shots mm -hmm. with a single trigger pull. 
if what you're saying, Justice O'Connor, is, is that constitutes a machine gun, uh, then I would have to agree with your analysis of the Tenth Circuit opinion. <clears throat> However, how... And, and if it were shown that this defendant knew of, of, of that capability, of that operational feature, then there wouldn't be really a case here. That's correct. All right. There are approximately 70 million law-abiding gun owners in this country who Congress has consistently sought to protect. The protection of hunters and sportsmen is codified in Section 101 of the Gun Control Act, cited in our brief at page 39. Of the 70 million law-abiding gun owners, a large percentage of them own semi-automatic guns, purchased lawfully, just like Mr. Staples at a public gun show, authorized by 18 U.S.C. 923, subsection J. In the record and throughout the case law, there are cited numerous instances where truly innocent Possessors of semi-automatic rifles may be convicted of knowing possession of a machine gun. For example, at trial of this case, Judge Cook expressly, repeatedly showed concern about people who may be out duck hunting and their sport rifle may double by accident without any prior indication that it had such capability, and that doubling would result in conviction under the strict liability interpretation of 26 U.S.C. Section 5861D. Under these circumstances, Judge Cook said, it violates our system of fair play, but he assumed that people wouldn't be prosecuted. Perhaps the best example, cited by Judge Ebel, in the concurring opinion printed at page 24A, excuse me, 23A, of the petition for cert. Consider, for example, a situation in which a person who knows nothing about guns inherits a rifle from a relative. Unbeknownst to the recipient, the gun is defective, occasionally discharges two rounds of ammunition, and after a single pull of the trigger, or perhaps it's been converted by a prior owner to an automatic weapon. Because he has no use for the rifle, the recipient stores it with other unnecessary possessions in the basement or attic without ever having used it or examined it. Under the strict liability theory, he would be prosecuted and sentenced. The penalties which accompany conviction for violation of 26 U.S.C. 5861D are harsh. Ten years imprisonment, $10,000 fine, or both. When you talk about fair play, counsel, you're not suggesting that if this statute, in fact, said all you have to know is that you have a gun, and the gun, in fact, has to be of a certain type, that if that's what this statute said, that's fair play. Justice Ginsburg, I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. you're, you're, You're interpreting a statute. And you say said that the statute requires that the defendant know he possessed a machine gun. Suppose, so, and as you read the statute, that's what it says. That's correct. If the statute, in fact, said the defendant must know he has a gun, the gun must be a machine gun, period, that that would be fair play, that, that you wouldn't, you're not raising a constitutional point. No. And, and also I would uh, direct Justice Ginsburg, as you well know, in the U.S. versus Harris uh, decision decided by the D.C. Circuit, of which you authored, uh, there is no constitutional uh, I don't believe I authored that decision. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I think it was Judge Silberman. Right, not, you're correct. I stand corrected. I believe that uh, Justice Thomas concurred in that. That's correct. Uh, as well, that uh, there is no constitutional requirement to imply a cyanar element in the criminal offenses. However, what the courts have done in recent history is that they have used uh, tools of statutory construction, the rule of lenity, uh, 
to find that... If there's an ambiguity. If there, that's correct. If there is an ambiguous statute, uh, then principles of fundamental criminal law mandate that the government prove mens rea. Support for the application of rule of lenity stated that in this case, particularly in the Harris decision, that if Congress, against the background of widespread lawful gun ownership, wished to criminalize the mere possession of an unregistered uh, machine, uh, excuse me, firearm, often indistinguishable from other non-prohibitive types, it would have clearly stated that effect. Do, do they say that in our drug laws? I mean, uh, 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 you know, possession of heroin and so forth, do they say, knowing that, it, knowing that it is heroin, do those statutes say that? No, those are, for the most part, and I'm, I must tell you, I'm not familiar with every single one of the uh, controlled substances statutes, but they would, most of them do require strict liability. However, the difference between a controlled narcotic or sulfuric acid or other substances of that nature is it doesn't have the support of the Constitution. There is a Second, second Amendment right to bear arms. And for that reason, Congress has chosen time and time again to protect that right and distinguish what firearms need to be registered and taxed and what firearms may be legally owned and possessed. But doesn't Congress also say what drugs are unlawful? Yes, certainly they do. <clears throat> they're, they're regulated. So why isn't this case more like the drug case, particularly the balance case, than it is like the food stamp case? Because a gun is a dangerous instrument. There's nothing dangerous about a food stamp. I would agree with you, Justice Ginsburg. There's nothing dangerous necessarily about a, about a uh, food stamp. However, what you have before you is a, is a weapon that is legal, that has legal uses and legal possession. Food stamps also have legal uses and legal possession, and you stand the risk of criminalizing innocent behavior, uh, innocent possessors, by not implying a knowledge requirement in the 26. Some drugs have um, lawful uses, too? Certainly, uh, prescription drugs, or uh, if that's what the justice is referring to. Uh, however, well, one could even lawfully possess marijuana in connection with the treatment of certain forms of cancer. Is that not so? That is, that is correct. Uh, however, the distinction here, again, those exceptions have been noted. For example, uh, we know that this court's rendered decisions, uh, I haven't reviewed them recently, dealing with uh, spiritual uses for marijuana or other uh, narcotics to, to allow that freedom to exist, just as there's a freedom here to bear arms and a right to bear arms and, and legal uses. I understand what uh, this has to do with the case. Would you explain that again? Only in that it allowed Congress, it supports a constitutional basis to allow Congress, uh, which Congress has relied on, let me rephrase that, it provides a constitutional basis which Congress has relied on to protect legitimate law-abiding uses or sport rifles in target practice or hunting or duck hunting or whatever the use may be. There is a right to bear arms. It's not something that's... Uh, that the militia has. Exactly. That's correct. Is, is this part of somebody's militia, this machine? No. What we have before this court is, is uh, well, mentioned just a citizen. The, the lawful uses of, of uh, articles of this kind. What is the primary lawful use of a machine gun? 
There are approximately, my understanding would be about 140,000 registered machine guns. I understand they are used in competitions. No, I'm not I, I just don't happen to know what is the primary lawful use. Why would one not think, getting a machine gun, that there might be a reason to check as to whether there's any reason to have it registered or, and so forth? Why is it? Is it so commonly used like a, an automobile or something like that? Isn't, isn't that the kind of article that would put you on notice? And if you want to uh, use it in that you ought to check and be sure the use is lawful? Well, Your Honor, I don't uh, stand before this court to be a firearms expert, but I do believe that there are competitions involving machine guns and there are other, are other uh, uses for them, those of which were lawfully registered prior to the ban of 1986. Uh, I don't know what other legitimate... Is your point machine guns or is, is your point uh, uh, semi-automatic rifles? This which, case... Due to some def defect may... Uh, may turn into machine guns, which is what you, what, what you say is the situation here. That's correct. That's there are many more than 140,000 semi-automatic rifles. That's right. Many They're hunters use semi-automatics all the time. It just means you don't have to reload each time you, you fire one round. That's right, and that is exactly what this case is about. Uh, the semi-automatic weapon in this case uh, is a sport rifle. I there suppose that a, a pistol, would a pistol that, 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 that had that defect become a, uh, would an automatic pistol that have, had that defect become a machine gun? You mean a semi-automatic pistol? Semi-automatic pistol? It's my understanding that any semi-automatic pistol, sport rifle, uh, shotgun has the capability... one round with a pull, it doesn't matter how long the barrel is, it becomes a machine gun. If it fires more than one shot with a single pull of the trigger, uh, it becomes a machine gun under the strict liability theory. Uh, that was the, that's the concern in most of the courts that have uh, implied a knowledge requirement into 2658-61D. Uh, and this case is, involves a semi-automatic sport rifle, as any semi-automatic uh, gun can be converted into an auto automatic or can, by malfunction, as did this gun, perform, <coughs> uh, would produce multiple shots with a single pull. Well, that's not quite accurate. This, didn't, this wasn't really a semi-automatic weapon. It was, it was an automatic weapon that had been rendered semi-automatic and that because of a defect became automatic again. I, I, Wasn't this weapon an automatic weapon as originally designed and, and it had been modified to prevent the automatic uh, feature of it from operating? If you're referring to the stop on the switch, uh, the, I was, when this, the testimony at trial has been consistently from the seller uh, all the way through of uh, this AR-15 sport rifle, is that when my client purchased it at the gun show, it was, it was manufactured with M16 internal parts. The selector switch on the outside had a three-position lever that allows it to go uh, from safe to semi to auto, and there was a stop on that uh, to prevent it from semi to auto. Uh, the court should know, and, and it is printed in the transcript and in the briefs, that there are AR-15 sport rifles out there and other semi-automatic guns out there that have no stop at all, nothing to prevent the user uh, from turning the lever from the semi to the auto. However, the, the turning of Which, that lever... You wouldn't be making this argument if your client had bought one of those. Well, with one exception, and that is, even if you turn the lever, that in and of itself, in this gun, will not allow the gun to produce multiple shots. You have to have the malfunction of hammer follow no, I, I realize that, but if your, if your client had bought one of those guns in which there was a third position and all the client had to do was to put the... The, the device in the third position, you wouldn't be making the same argument that you're making here. You are correct, uh, primarily because at trial... Well, I, I suppose I didn't understand your answer to Justice Scalia's question. Uh, in, in the form that this came from the manufacturer, 
uh, and if it was operating properly without any defect, uh, would it, it would be semi-automatic only. Is that correct? That's correct. So it was not manufactured as a, a machine gun within the meaning of the act. That's correct. It's only not designed. Only if a defect does it, be, does it acquire that characteristic. That's correct. It's not designed to shoot multiple shots with a single pull of the trigger. And, and interestingly enough, the, the testimony at trial uh, from the expert, Mr. Fagg, in this case, was that this is not a weapon, for example, that you would want to sell to the military and represent was an M16. It's not a weapon by the government's experts' own concession that would reliably fire multiple shots with a single pull of the trigger. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, on page 16 of the government's brief, they make the following statement. In cases in which the offense involves regulation of an item that would not ordinarily be considered a hazard to the community, a rigorous knowledge element may be implied. The rationale all parties agree for the implication of a knowledge requirement is that any other result would risk criminalizing a broad range of innocent conduct, just as we were discussing earlier in the Liberata decision. Certainly I would not represent to this court that guns are always safe, but Congress has repeatedly and deliberately chosen only to register and tax those guns which are considered to be highly dangerous and offensive firearms. The government says that Congress wants to prevent the conversion of semi-automatic weapons to automatic weapons. The petitioner does not disagree necessarily with that statement. However, that assumes some knowledge or purposeful act on the part of a person, just as in the middle lighter decision rendered by the Tenth Circuit. The defendant in middle lighter sold his semi-automatic with a conversion kit to an undercover officer. The conversion kit for this AR-15 is called an auto-seer. It's a very small part whose only function is to allow the gun to fire automatically, more than one shot with a single pull of the trigger. <clears throat> conversion of the gun cannot be accomplished reliably or purposefully without the auto-seer. Because the criminal offenses requiring no mens rea have a generally disfavored status, the petitioner respectfully requests this court to apply the rule of lenity in this case. <clears throat> Throughout their brief, the government alludes to gangsters and criminals in connection with gun possession. The petitioner is not a criminal, other than this conviction. He has no prior criminal record, nor does he advocate widespread use of machine guns. The petitioner does advocate fairness, however, in prosecution, and strongly believes that this honorable court and the Congress and the Constitution promote justice and fair play by providing citizens with notice of what conduct is unlawful and to prove that the defendant had knowledge of his unlawful conduct. To allow 26 Section 5861D to be a strict liability crime and by its random prosecution, the only support for this prosecution is an ambiguous statute that omits a critical element fundamental in criminal jurisprudence, and that is the defendant's mens rea. I would like to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you very much. I may proceed, Mr. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, it's our position that the jury was properly instructed in this case and the petitioner's conviction accordingly should be affirmed. The jury was instructed that in order to convict the petitioner, it had to find that he possessed a machine gun, 
and that he knew he possessed a dangerous device of a type as would alert one to the likelihood of regulation. It's our position that that is sufficient for a conviction under Section 5861D and that the court properly rejected petitioner's proposed instruction that would have required the jury to find that he knew that the weapon he possessed had all of the characteristics, including the ability to fire automatically, um, that subjected to regulation under the National Firearms Act. Mr. Feldman, now, just to clarify for us, you agree that this weapon was uh, manufactured as a semi-automatic? Yes, there's a military... And as manufactured, it would not fall within the definition of a machine gun? At least, uh, yes, yes. There's a military weapon, which is an M16. It's a selective fire weapon that has a switch that you can turn to automatic, semi-automatic, or I think safety. Now, this if, if the modifications of a weapon were, were strictly internal, uh, so there was nothing on the exterior that would alert a possessor about the change, uh, and if you had a defendant who simply didn't know that the weapon had been modified internally when it was purchased, uh, that person would be liable under your theory, I That's guess. correct. That's correct. Of course, that, that there have been courts which have distinguished between cases where the modification was entirely, exter- was entirely internal mm-hmm. and where there was some external uh, modification. Yeah, I just want to understand how far your theory goes, and it would go so far as to hold someone who is absolutely unaware of the modification. Yes, that's correct. Just as that's correct, the Congress's intent when it enacted the National Firearms Act, well, when Congress enacted the National Firearms Act in 1934, it made it a crime to possess a machine gun that's not registered in the national uh, registration records. It modeled the statute. It specifically stated that it modeled the statute on the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914. This court had, which imposed a similar registration record-keeping requirement on opiates and cocaine. In the United States against Bailent in 1922, this court held that that statute does not require the government to prove that the defendant has the kind of knowledge that petitioner argues must be proven in this case. That, in, that under, under Bailent, under the, under the Harrison Narcotics Act, it's not necessary to show that the defendant knows that the drugs he possessed had the characteristics of opium or opiates or cocaine. Mr. Fulton, I don't understand. The statute says that it's to be interpreted like the Narcotic Act? No, it doesn't say that. If you look at the, if you set it, if you set the original 1934 statute alongside the Narcotics Act, the uh, similarities are, are striking. The penalty provision is identical. A lot of the language is the same. But I think equally, equally important, the um, the Attorney General Cummings, who, dra- who had a role in drafting the statute, stated that he modeled it on the Harrison Narcotics Act, and the committee report stated we have modeled this on the Harrison Narcotics Act. Narcotics are different from a from a an, an, a semi-automatic rifle, which are very common. That's true. Narcotics are different, but... Narcotics I, may not be different from a machine gun that looks like a machine gun. It's well, something when, you know, you're presented, we say, gee, this is a machine gun. What's this doing around here? Or if you're pre- presented with narcotics, the same thing. You're on notice right away. But, but when, you, when, you're, when you see a, a semi-automatic rifle, hunters use them throughout the country. No big deal. That's true. And, but I think the same thing would have been true of drugs uh, at the time they uh, enacted the Harrison Narcotics Act. In other words, the court didn't say that the, 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 the burden of the court's decision in Bailent was that if you possessed drugs and you didn't know that those drugs were opium or co- opiates or cocaine, you could still be prosecuted under the act. And the reason that the court reached that the conclusion and the reason that Congress intended that and the reason that they didn't put a mens rea provision in the statute here is that 
that drugs as a general category of items, like firearms, can pose a very severe threat to the community. That was the premise on which the Firearms Act and the Narcotics Act uh, were enacted. And if you are in possession of those, that sort of item that can pose such a threat to the community, it's up, Congress wanted it to be up to you to investigate what the nature of the item is that you had and what the legal requirements that you had to comply with in order to possess it. That conclusion is particularly apt because this was a registration and record-keeping provision. Well, it was, except that in the narcotics example, I, I suppose it's, it's true to say that Congress did not draw a line between uh, 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 sort of down the middle of, of, in the class of dangerous narcotics and say, well, we'll, we'll um, prohibit or regulate some and leave others uh, free. But that, in effect, is what has happened in the gun situation. Uh, I mean, after all, the Brady Bill didn't pass until last week. I mean, there's just been a, a, a long history of refusal to regulate uh, the major class of guns in, in this country. Uh, so that when you are faced with something that, so far as externals are concerned, uh, looks perfectly well like a, a gun which is unregulated and which has been uh, the, the subject of, of uh, repeated decisions not to regulate, you're not in the same situation that you're in with the narcotics. I, I, I guess I'd respectfully disagree with that. Um, in 1934, when Congress, what Congress did want to regulate was machine guns. It wanted to know how many machine guns there were, who had them, who had control of them, where they were located. In order to enforce that, just as with the Narcotics Act, where there were many other drugs that were not regulated, aside from opiates and cocaine uh, by the Act, in both cases, I think the situation was exactly parallel. There were many things which Congress didn't want to directly regulate. But these are items that are dangerous, that pose, can pose threats, serious threats to the general welfare. And they didn't want, in the case of machine guns, machine guns to be kicking around in somebody's attic where they can surface at some later date. Uh, and wreak havoc well, on I'm, the I'm still, I, I guess may, maybe I'm going to move aside a little bit from, the, from attacking the historical analogy and just go to the, to the merits of, of, of applying the interpretive rule here. Given the fact that the, that the, 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 the overwhelming uh, um, number of guns in this country, all of which are dangerous to some degree, are not regulated, uh, I have difficulty in seeing the, the ease of applying this rule that one simply uh, is on notice that there may be regulation by virtue of the fact that one has a, a weapon which, by definition, is dangerous. Wow. So just on, on the analytical point, I, I, I think you've got a, a hurdle to jump here. I think, well, I, I guess I, I do think the historical point is important, but I, I think e ana analytically, the vast majority of those guns that are unregulated are not machine guns, couldn't fire automatically, and, and wouldn't be supposed to be mach machine guns by anybody. It's not a serious burden that's put on people. But I think that if you do the, 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 the court's decisions in, um, in, in uh, uh, Bailant, in Dodderweich, in the more recent Freed, and in International Minerals, I think that they do set a line that when you're dealing Although that when you're dealing with extraordinarily hazardous items, and especially where there's a registration or record-keeping scheme where Congress wanted to know the locations of those items and who had them, that the people who have those extraordinarily dangerous items, it's up to them to find out what it is precisely that they own. Well, does the, does the argument then in this case come down uh, to, the, to the fact that if you're dealing with a machine gun, that's fair to say, something which is manufactured as a machine gun, sold as a machine gun, um, anyone uh, sort of buying it uh, could reasonably be assumed, or possessing it could reasonably be assumed to know that it was a machine gun, but that the argument doesn't wash uh, in the case of a gun which, at least to, to external appearances, is not a machine gun. Well, 
There have, as I said, there have been courts that have taken that view, and that view, I, I suppose, would be an intermediate view where there had been no external indicia that, that, that could alert one to, uh, to the fact that it was a machine gun. But frankly, but I don't... The fact that it falls within this very dangerous category of regulated weapons. I, the f In other words, we've got a category of dangerous weapons which are not regulated. Presumably, there's nothing about the possession of a single-shot 22 that ought to put the, the owner on, 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 uh, uh, to an obligation of, of calling the government to see whether they regulate single-shot 22s. Uh, when, when the person uh, possesses or buys a, a machine gun, pure and simple, uh, yes, you've got a pretty strong argument that it's, it's fair to put that obligation on them. Then we have the middle category of, uh, of, of, of guns which maybe can, can be converted, uh, and which in most cases are not. Uh, and is it, uh, is it appropriate to put the obligation on the possessor or the buyer of, of those weapons to see whether something, in fact, has, uh, has been modified about them that puts them into the especially dangerous regulable category? And that's the issue we've got. Right, and I think it is appropriate. I think it's appropriate both because Congress, I think primarily for the reasons I've already said, but because when Congress enacted the statute, they didn't include a mens rea component here. They did model it on the Harrison Narcotics Act. And in other areas where you're well, dealing they, with... Well, they, they may have done that on, on the assumption that we were going to apply this rule, which we're having difficulty uh, applying, or at least I'm having difficulty applying. Congress may have said, well, the, you know, the, in fact, Congress frequently does this. You know, the courts will work it out. They'll figure out what to do here. So I'm not sure that you can infer much from, from Congress's failure to act positively here. I guess, I, well, I, I think actually the, the way I would put it would be that the burden is on, well, the burden would, would be uh, on petitioners uh, to show that, that even though Congress didn't include, it's not their failure to act positively, they did act positively. They enacted a criminal statute that provides that it is unlawful to possess a machine gun that's not registered in the National uh, Firearms uh, Registration well, while keeping While keeping their silence mm -hmm. on, on men's rights. Right. Well, well without, without indicating a mens rea, and in doing that, as I said, followed exactly the Harrison Narcotics Act. And in the, it's, it, it, the decisions that have uh, applied the principle that we're talking about aren't limited to the bailing case. In the Dodder White case, you were talking about misbranded or adulterated drugs. Now, there's a wide variety of unmisbranded and non-adulterated drugs that are around. But I, I think, I guess, what's, I guess what's bothering me is that I don't see in the drug situation uh, an analogy to this fact about the gun situation. In the gun situation, uh, there has been a, a continuing political contest for further back than I can tell um, uh, about the appropriateness of regulating guns. And Congress, by and large, has taken a very narrow view of, of what should be regulated. Uh, and it seems to me that that is a fact uh, which makes it difficult uh, to apply sort of your tough version of the rule. Uh, and I don't see any analogy there in the, in the drug situation. Well, I mean, I, I guess I'd make two points in response to that. Uh, first, um, Congress has, though, decided it wanted to regulate machine guns. And I'm not suggesting that Congress wanted to regulate other types of guns. All it wanted was it to know that if you had a machine gun, and if you knew that if people who had machine guns had to have them registered, and it wanted to know where they were. That doesn't suggest that it's trying to regulate other types of guns. It's just suggesting that they wanted to make their regulation of machine guns an effective regulation that would ensure that they got registered. The second point I'd make is that throughout the years since the Gun Control Act of 1968, when Congress has extensively, re in 1968, they recodified the National Firearms Act in 1986. They amended it, as well as the Gun Control Act, which are the Title 18 provisions. Throughout those years, and up until very recently, the courts were unanimous or almost unanimous 
that our position in this case was right and that all you had to know was to know that it was a weapon in the general sense in the general sense there was no need for Congress other to act than any circuit other than the DC circuit that has gone for the defendant and the, the D, as we read the cases the only the DC circuit is the only is the one that created the conflict in the circuits uh, that, uh, on the issue in this case um, there are three circuits the Ninth Circuit the Sixth Circuit and the fifth I think the Fifth Circuit that have held have just appeared to us at least to distinguish between guns that where the modification is entirely internal and, and um, guns where there's some external modification as there was in this case couldn't one rank this gun uh, based on the defendant's expert testimony that this was uh, a defect and say bracket the defective gun with the internal modification rather than the external modification well, I one could accept that I think the jury squarely rejected petitioner's uh, evidence that the, that the gun was defective. There was nothing defective about the gun. Perhaps if it had an additional part, it could have operated more reliably, but there was extensive evidence that the gun had been taken out, uh, ammunition of various, several different times had been put in the gun, and it had fired automatically with a single pull of the trigger. Of course, in your position, if, even if it's defective, uh, there's liability. I don't know. I don't think so. I think if the gun, in fact, if the gun was... I suppose it might it might matter what you what you mean by defective. If the gun once or twice fired a multiple rounds, and but was I think a jury reasonably could find, and a defendant reasonably could argue to a jury that this just wasn't a machine gun. It well, isn't, isn't, it, a, isn't it a question of law as to what is a machine gun and what isn't? Right, and it's it, I mean, well, I mean, is, your, is it your position that a defective firearm that fires uh, multiple rounds is or is not a machine gun? If it if it if it fires multiple rounds. I mean, I, let, me, let me refer to the uh, language of the um, definition. A machine gun is defined as any weapon... Can you tell me where you're reading from, please? Um, actually, it's excerpted on page four of our brief. Thank you. Any weapon which shoots is designed to shoot or can be readily restored to shoot automatically more than one shot without manual reloading. I think when it says which, shoot, which shoots or is designed to shoot or can be readily restored to shoot, I think you could take the term shoot there not to mean that it did it once by virtue of some defect, but so the government's shoot, position is that, that it is the type of this is a, a capability that this weapon has. So the government's position is that there's a machine gun involved if it shoots most of the time or some of the time as fully automatic. I, I, I hesitate to depart too far from this. I, I think it has to have the general capability of shooting more than once with a single pull of the trigger. If, if the statute that. is ambiguous, isn't that a, an argument for requiring specific knowledge of its characteristics as opposed to strict liability? I don't. In the, in the, I, I guess I don't see the ambiguity. I mean, I think there are going to be there are going to be close cases. Well, it seems to me we've just stumbled onto one. I don't actually. I don't think it's an ambiguity. I think it's a question of the application of a lot of fact. The question is, does this gun have the capability of shooting automatically? That question could arise even if you took petitioner's view of the case. Under any view of the case, you could have a question of whether the gun itself was or was not an automatic weapon. Uh, in, the question is whether it has the general capability of shooting automatically. That's a question that can be argued to the jury, but that's a question. And the government has the burden of proof on that. I that's think. right. And the jury must be instructed as to that. That's right, and that's a question on which there was conflicting evidence in this case, but there was extensive evidence that this gun would fire as a matter of course if you put in, if you held the trigger down and put in ordinarily commercially available ammunition, it would fire automatically, and the jury uh, credited that evidence. And well, was the jury instructed on, on, the, uh, on a defensive defect here? 
I didn't think it was. I don't recall it. I actually don't recall it. Well, you said a moment ago that the jury rejected the theory that, uh, that in fact, this was a merely defective gun, and I didn't, re I didn't understand that that issue was put to the jury. The, in fact, I, I don't, uh, as I understood the instructions, the jury wouldn't have had any occasion even to take that, that, uh, that issue up. The jury was instructed, that it was instructed, I think, in terms of the definition of machine gun that I read to you, as yeah. you recall. It wasn't and, and under that what definition, is. as I understand the instructions, uh, if the jury found that uh, that on one occasion one pull of the trigger uh, uh, shot uh, more than one round, that 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 would qualify as a machine gun. Well, the I don't jury was not instructed, as I understand it, that in in the generality of cases this particular gun had to function in that way, and as I understand it, it was not instructed uh, that if it did so as a result of a defect, that it was not a machine gun. Am I wrong about the instruction? Again, I don't recall. I don't, it wasn't, I don't, the latter instruction I don't think was well, given. Well, then we can't say that the jury rejected the theory of defect in this case. I think what you can say is that the jury concluded that the gun was an automatic gun as defined by, an automatic uh, gun as defined by the statute. And also, I, I really have well, to say I, I that agree with you, but that's not, that's not the point. The point is, did it reject a theory <laughs> of defective weapon? Uh, such that if it had found it was merely defective, that would have been uh, defensive, and the jury didn't reject that. Well, I have to say, I, the, the Court of Appeals didn't rule, as I recall, on, any, uh, on a theory of defective uh, weapon in the petition. No, I'm not addressing didn't... the Court of Appeals. I'm just addressing your argument, and you were making the argument a moment ago that the jury had rejected the theory of defect, and I don't see how it did. You can, you can make that argument based on the instructions. Well, let, let me go. As far as the theory of defect goes, I... I don't understand exactly what the theory of defect is. If the theory of defect is that it was able, it was shot once because something was wrong with it uh, multiple times with a, uh, a pull of the trigger, but couldn't, that couldn't be repeated. Well, regardless, that, that regardless of what the theory of defect is, the jury did not reject a theory of defect. Isn't that fair to say, under the jury instructions I guess as given? I, I don't mean to be, uh, uh, to, to fight the premises here, but... You're, I think you're, doing, you're doing a good job. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, the jury was instructed that it had to find that this was a machine gun. The jury, re in t if, if petitioner's defense was, well, this only fired automatically because it was a defect and I didn't mean it to fire automatically. No, the jury wasn't asked to rule on any question like that. The fact was that this gun was fitted with automatic parts. It had a piece, a pin which ordinarily sits on the receiver and keep, would keep, even if all the automatic parts, all the semi-automatic parts had been replaced by automatic parts, that pin would keep the lever from shifting over to the automatic position. That pin had been visibly ground down. Now, if petitioner's view of defect, as far as I understand it, was simply that the gun could have had another part which would have made it fire, um, which would have made it fire automatically more reliably, and that since it didn't have that part, it only fired automatically as a result of a defect. In our view, I don't think that was any real distinction, and there was no reason to instruct the jury. But in, in any sense in which it's relevant, I think the jury did reject the theory of defect. Mr. Feldman, can I ask what the government's theory of, of mens rea requirement is? You're, you're certainly not asserting that we should read every federal statute which does not explicitly have a knowledge requirement as dispensing with it. That's correct. Ordinarily, we will read in a, a requirement that you have to know you're violating the law. That's correct. Now, what, what makes this different? I would say there's about three factors. There's one is the correlation between, and the, the Congress's attempt to model this act on the Harrison Narcotics Act. There's two, that this involves highly dangerous items 
that are a serious threat to the community, and three, that it's a registration and record-keeping requirement. It's a, it's in, the criminal prohibition here is in aid of seeing to it that these weapons get registered and that the government know where they are and who has them. All registration and record-keeping requirements do not have a scienter. Uh, I think where Congress, I, I, we would be comfortable with the rule that where Congress doesn't specify otherwise, and where it's dealing with highly hazardous uh, uh, threats to the community and imposes a registration and record-keeping requirement, in those circumstances, a very weak scienter requirement of the sort that uh, was given to the jury here is Well, Mr. Fillman, does the government want to concede that uh, you ordinarily read in a requirement that you must know you're violating the law in every criminal statute where Congress is silent? Isn't the presumption ordinarily that ignorance of the law is no defense? Yeah, that's correct, and, and well, I didn't mean to concede that. Well, but it, then it seems to me you're, you're giving a, a different answer to me than you gave to Justice Scalia a moment ago. I'm, uh, what I was really, what I meant to say was, uh, where there's no specific, uh, there's no specification of a knowledge requirement, um, I think it ordinarily is appropriate to require that the defendant at least know the facts or the primary facts or the crucial facts that make his conduct illegal. I do think it's a question of reading each particular... Well, but th th that, that's a it's, it's one thing to say the defendant must know the facts that make his conduct illegal. It's another thing to, s to say that he must know the law that makes them illegal. Right. I don't think that there is a, there's, all, there's virtually never a requirement unless it's otherwise specified of knowledge. I, I, met, I met the former. You're, you're, uh, the Chief Justice is, is quite correct to, uh, to make that... Uh, modification. But in this case, that would lead to the, the normal requirement that he had to know the fact that it was a machine gun. That's right. And if, if we were to say that's not the case here because, because machine guns are dangerous and this act looks like another act that we've held doesn't have a record requirement and this is a, uh, doesn't have a, uh, such a requirement. And lastly, this, uh, this act uh, uh, is a record-keeping act. I, I, I mean, I guess, I guess what I would add to that is that the primary determinant should be what Congress's intent was. And the point about this looking like another act is I think that's a very strong index of what Congress's intent was. Do most record-keeping acts have uh, prison sanctions for up to 10 years, which is what this is? Uh, that is a the stiff sentence, I'll agree. But this act, when it was enacted, for instance, and there's no reason to think that the intent requirement would be any different today, had a prison requirement of five years and $2,000 which word for word was the same as the penalty provision in the Harrison Narcotics Act that, that, the, court, uh, uh, that the court interpreted. In well, it seems to me that implicit in the argument that there's a registration, a regulatory act, is, is also uh, the assumption that the penalty is, is, is not too severe. This is a very severe penalty. It, it's true that it is a severe penalty, but as I said, that, that penalty was, was not, it's not that different from the penalty that was in effect when the act was first passed. And there's certainly no reason to think that over the years, I think Congress upped the uh, penalty from five years to 10 years in 1968, but that either then or in 1986, when uh, additional amendments, some amendments were made here and some to the Gun Control Act, that at any of those times, Congress wanted to change the act. In fact, to the contrary, at all relevant times, both the line of decisions that I've cited, Dodderwike and Bailent, and the decisions of this court, uh, it's recognized in Morset as well, and uh, International Minerals, at all relevant times, those decisions uh, uniformly uh, supported our position, as did the decisions of the lower courts. Mr. Feldman, remind me of your answer to Justice Souter's question about the difference between drugs, where one would say yeah, drugs are dangerous, and guns, where for the most part Congress hasn't regulated, so it's only special category that's, that's registered. You don't have the same kind of um, congressional determination of dangerousness. 
I think there's, there's really distinctions on both sides of that. First, when, in, when Congress enacted the Harrison Narcotics Act, and generally in the early part of the century, drugs were much less regulated than they are today. And the Harrison Narcotics Act only purported to regulate cocaine and opiates, not any other drugs. But secondly, from the other point of view, I think guns are extensively regulated in our society. There are items that are very dangerous and are known to be dangerous by people, and Congress legislated under that background assumption. And guns, guns are, sufficiently highly, uh, high, are sufficiently regulated and sufficiently dangerous that if you have one, it's up to you to determine whether, uh, whether it fires automatically. Another example, for instance, would be a short-barreled rifle. Now, short-barreled rifles or, short, or sawed-off shotguns are also firearms under the National Firearms Act. Um, it's, I don't think someone could reason, uh, could read under petitioner's view, the government has to prove that. I suppose that somebody took out a ruler and measured the length of a barrel on one of those weapons and saw that it was less than the specified uh, 16 or 18 inches in the statute. I don't think that that's what Congress intended. The Congress intended that if you own a shotgun or a rifle, it's up to you to determine how long the barrel is. And so long as you know you own the rifle or the shotgun, if the barrel is shorter than the 16 or 18 inches, it's a firearm under the act. What if, what if, what if you don't even know that it's you don't even know you have a shotgun. You you buy a house, right? And sealed up in 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 a in a in an abandoned room in the basement, there is a uh, a, a sawed-off shotgun. Would would you be liable? You don't no. have to know anything at all. You don't even have to know you possess it. No, that's not our position. Our position is you have to know it is oh. is you do have to know it's a gun. The possession. The why the is that? Position we have. Uh, why is that? Because it's, I think it withdraws the line that the court has drawn between items that are entirely that are entirely innocent. Uh, such as uh, such as food stamps or uh, uh, the type of conduct at issue in the United States. Is that the way the drug law is interpreted too? That that, that you appeal to? If if I sell something that I think is face powder, and it turns out to be heroin, is is that what they said in uh, in in, uh, in Ballant, That's not what they said. In Ballant, they didn't address what you what they what the court held in Ballant was that you. It rejected petitioner's position in this case, which is you don't have to know that what you possessed was opiates or cocaine. They did, the court didn't go into what you do have to know. Well, but if, and to I some think extent, if you're going to appeal to Bailant in the drug cases, you, you have to say it really doesn't even matter whether he knows it's, uh, it's a, he owns a gun. I, I think that it's reasonable. To, I think the question of what you do have to know uh, is, is, well, it's one that they didn't address in Bailant. Um, and generally, I mean, generally you could interpret this to be a strict liability offense. However, in light of the court's uh, distinctions in between, for instance, cases such as Liparota in the United States Gypsum and cases like Bailent or Dodderreich or Freed, I think it's reasonable to draw the line and infer a very mild... Wasn't it true that all the courts of appeals have done that? They said easily, they at least have to know that he possessed the item. Yes, as far as I'm... Uh, you happen to know as a matter of history uh, what precipitated the enactment of the 34 Act? I, I was... Um, you know, there was testimony about Dillinger, I believe. He didn't live in Chicago then, I guess. Yes, yeah. yes. Is it, is it fair to say, we, we could argue about the facts of application, but is it fair to say that your interpret the government's interpretive rule uh, for finding what Congress probably intended or imputing an intent to Congress does require uh, for your position to prevail uh, that, that we conclude uh, that uh, the the that the, that the defendant understand that what he was possessing uh, was, uh, was an object within a class of highly dangerous objects which it is reasonable to suppose the government would regulate. Yeah, that's I, the general I, premise? I, that that's, would be one formulation. Okay. If there's no further questions, uh, Thank you, Mr. Feldman. Uh, Ms. DeAngelis, you have ten minutes remaining. 
Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. It is important for this Court to remember that not all guns are taxed and regulated. And as with regard to the congressional intent, I'd like to leave the Court with this thought from the Anderson decision in the Fifth Circuit. It is unthinkable to us that Congress intended to subject such law-abiding, well-intentioned citizens to a possible 10-year term of imprisonment if unknown to them, without reasonable cause on their part to think otherwise, what they genuinely and reasonably believed was a conventional semi-automatic pistol turns out to have been worn down or secretly modified to be fully automatic. That's the court that makes the distinction between internal and external. That's right. Uh, Which we don't have here because whatever you call it, it was external. In part, Justice Ginsburg, I think that the government has stated, even in pretrial proceedings, that the modifications in this case were twofold. One, it contained M16 parts. Uh, the government says the parts were substituted. That was not the, the evidence at trial. Uh, the evidence was it was purchased by Mr. Stables with M16 parts. It was manufactured in that fashion. And one of those parts was the selector stop and the, le- and the uh, switch, the stop being modified or filed or worn down in some fashion by someone at some time. But you're, you're not saying that this case fits within the, you can't see it, it's, uh, all on the inside. That's correct. There are no further questions. Thank you, Ms. Dan. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.